All right, good evening, everybody. I've got 701, so if we can uh, find our places, we will uh, we'll go ahead and get started with tonight's uh, lesson. So once again, we are in uh, a study in the uh, book of uh, Romans. Uh, we're in chapter 8, and this evening we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, and the title of, uh, of the lesson or the message is Liberated to Love. Can somebody do me a favor and just shut that door over there? Thank you. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, read our verses. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, now, you just thought we were done last week with verse 1. This is why it's so hard to get through Romans, because some of these verses are just so good, you can't cover them. Uh, in one lesson. So I want to talk a little bit more uh, tonight about verse 1. And verse 1 is all about justification or or being made right with God, our status uh, before God. Now last week we, we focused on the word condemnation. Uh, that's the Greek word katakrima. And, and what we focused on there was the fact that condemnation is not like the English word condemnation, which basically means to condemn or to accuse or to blame. But condemnation, the word that Paul uses, kind of um, encompasses the whole courtroom drama, if you will. Someone is accused, they're found guilty, and they are, they are assigned some kind of pun- uh, punishment or penalty. So when it says someone is condemned, it's the whole gamut uh, of that. So now, one thing we didn't do last week is we didn't really focus too much on the last three words. It says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the reason we didn't focus a lot on it is because we covered that in detail back in chapter 6. So if you hadn't had a chance to to listen to any of those, you can go back uh, to uh, Facebook or YouTube and and catch up. But uh, those words are, that is really the key to the verse. Listen, it doesn't say there is no condemnation for someone who walks down an aisle and prays a prayer. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for someone who fills out a census and says, I'm a Christian. It doesn't say that. It says there's no condemnation for someone who is united with Christ. You see, the fact is, to be in Christ means that we are one with Him by faith. When we got saved, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment in time, in that instant, we are in Christ. We are united with Him. And because we are one with Christ in the courtroom of God, we are identified with Him. So we are going to be judged the same way God would judge His Son. So if He sees His Son as perfectly righteous, He sees us as perfectly righteous. If He sees His Son as sinless, which of course He does, He sees us as sinless. As such, we are, as Christians, immune from condemnation. Absolutely immune from condemnation. Now let me say once again, what we're talking about here is salvation. And salvation, according to the Scriptures, has nothing to do with your walk. You know, you're not saved. It has nothing to do with uh, whether you got up today and had a good day or you had a bad day. 
whether you committed little sins or you committed big sins. My salvation depends on Christ and Christ alone. My faith is in Him. I'm putting all my, I'm putting, I'm all in with Jesus. All right? It's all on Him that I've put it in. So again, it's all about being in Christ. Now, I heard a great analogy this week I wanted to pass on to you. It's the difference between good advice and good news. Uh, and, it, and this actually relates to what I'm talking about, so just stick with me for just one second. Um, this guy was telling a story about a, a teacher who was preparing her students. All semester, she prepared them for the final exam. She gave them study guides. She even had after-school study sessions, and, and she gave them questionnaires, and she told them what was going to be on the final exam. She just went above board to help all these students take this test. Well, the day comes when it's time to take this final exam. And uh, she, they all come in, she hands out the papers, and they begin to take the test. And, and like teachers do, she's walking around the room, and she goes by this one uh, young boy, and she happens to look at his paper, and she notices that it is completely empty, that he can't come up with anything. He's not writing anything down. Now, at that moment, good advice would be something like this. She could lean over and say, hey, I know you're struggling, but just take a deep breath, Think back about what, we've, what we studied. Think back about the study guides. Think about the study sessions. Think about the question and answer sessions. Just, just calm down. Take a deep breath. Think about what you studied. Remember it. And just do the very best you can. Now, that would be good advice, wouldn't it? Good news would be if she, if she sat down beside him, took his paper and said, let me take the test for you. That's good news. Folks, Jesus took the test for us. You see, one day there's going to be a final exam at the judgment seat of Christ. And to get into heaven, you've got to make a 100. You cannot make a single mistake. And you've got a choice today. You're either going to depend on your own test score or you can let Jesus take the test for you. I choose to let Jesus take the test for me. I don't know about you. See, if you let Jesus take the test for you, you're immune from condemnation. You pass with flying colors. There's no penalty, there's no guilt, and there's no accusation. In Romans 8.33, Paul will say this, Who shall bring a charge? Folks, that's an accusation. Who, who shall accuse God's elect or God's chosen? By the way, that's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is obvious. Nobody. Why? Because God has already judged me righteous. Who in the world can bring an accusation against me? So here's the question. If there's no condemnation for Christians, then why do I feel so condemned when I sin? You ever thought about that? Any of y'all ever felt condemned when you sin? I want to talk to you just a little bit before we leave verse 1 about something that nobody for the longest time ever explained to me. And that is the difference between condemnation and conviction. The difference between condemnation and conviction. You see, when we sin, really as believers or unbelievers, when we sin, there are two things that you're going to feel or that you can feel. One is conviction and the other is condemnation. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm switching up on you here. I'm, I'm using the word condemnation in the English way, right? To feel blame, to feel guilty, to feel shame. Okay, I could have used, I just like the two C's. That sounds better, right? Condemnation and conviction, condemnation and conviction. So these are the two things that you can feel. So first of all, let's talk about how are they alike? Well, one way they're alike is they both involve very similar feelings. 
For example, they both involve sorrow or things like remorse. In fact, let me show you that from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So does everybody see that? There, here's a, 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 two people are sorry. One of them sorry in a godly way. The other one is sorry in an ungodly way or in a worldly way. So, so they both involve very similar feelings. So how are they different? Well, here's how they're different. I'm going to give you three ways. Number one, they're different in their origin. Okay? Condemnation is from Satan. Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren or the accuser of our brothers and sisters. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 says when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. So condemnation is from Satan, from the enemy. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Well, how do you tell them apart? Well, let's look at some of the characteristics. And I just wrote a few of these down. Condemnation always focuses on the problem. Conviction always focuses on the solution. Let me say that again. Condemnation always focuses on the problem. It's not interested in solving it. Conviction always focuses on the solution. How about this one? This is how condemnation speaks to you. What's wrong with you? You are a, you're a terrible person. You don't even deserve to sit in the pews with these other people. If they knew who you were, if they knew what you've done in your past, they wouldn't have nothing to do with you. You are a, you're, you're terrible. You're a loser. Anybody ever heard that voice? I have. Let me tell you, conviction, the Holy Spirit never does that. The Holy Spirit says, the blood of Jesus will forgive your sin. Come to me for forgiveness. How about this one? Condemnation tends to breed silence. Conviction motivates prayer. Condemnation motiv- it, it just brings silence, but conviction motivates prayer. You see, condemnation is like a sledgehammer. It just wants to beat you down into this pit of shame. It wants to cover you with this, this just this dark, hazy pressure. But see, and by the way, it's not that conviction doesn't deal with your sin, but it's like a scalpel. And the idea behind the Holy Spirit is not to... He wants to open a door to mercy. He doesn't want to beat you down. He wants to bring light to the situation. And this brings us to the third difference between conviction and condemnation is their purpose. The purpose of condemnation is to drive you away from God. The purpose of conviction is to bring you to God. See, this is why condemnation is so dangerous. You you know, we all feel guilt. Okay, that's just natural. By the way, if you don't feel guilt you got bigger problems. That means your conscience has been seared with a hot iron, and you got, you're long gone. You, we all feel guilt. Even as unbelievers, we feel guilt. And it's perfectly natural. We all want to get rid of our guilt, don't we? That is a lousy feeling. It's a terrible feeling to feel guilty. So we want to get rid of it. Well, what condemnation does is it will condemn you and say, here, you, you can deal with it in this way. Just, just try to be better. You're a terrible person, you're, you're, you know, but just be better. You, you just, just try. Or another way condemnation does is it, it justifies itself. It says things like this. Well, you're not as bad as they are. You're, you're a bad person, but at least you're not as bad as they are. Or how about this? You wouldn't have done that if they hadn't have made you. 
If they hadn't acted a certain way, you, they, they, they made you. They, they pushed your buttons. See, the problem with condemnation is it never sets you free. It just suppresses guilt. It masks guilt, but it never does anything to get rid of it. Look at what 2 Corinthians 7.10, we just read it. The sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, being sorrow in that way, being sorry in that way doesn't change anything. It just leaves you on the same path. You're going to do it again and again and again. You're not set free from anything. You've never been changed on the inside, and you're just going down a path which eventually leads to death. But the purpose of conviction is to drive us toward God. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. See, the, let me tell you, folks, if you ever feel condemned, if you ever hear that voice saying you are a loser, let me tell you definitively that is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not interested in beating you up. He's not interested in making you feel like a loser. That is not... He wants to use conviction to bring you to repentance and bring you to forgiveness. That's all He's interested in. There's a great scripture, and I'll, I'll prove that to you from scripture, by the way. John three seventeen and 18. We all know John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The very next verse says this, verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus did not come to condemn. The Holy Spirit did not come to condemn. By the way, I've heard a lot of people say, well, see that verse? Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Right, but read the next verse. If you don't believe in Him, you're condemned already. You're already condemned. See, the Holy Spirit's not trying to heap more condemnation. You're already condemned if you don't believe in Jesus. That's not what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to lead us to repentance. He wants to lead us to forgiveness. I've alluded to that 2 Corinthians 7 scripture a couple times. Let me, let me read it in full. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, and vindication. See, the Holy Spirit wants to say, come to me. Come to me for forgiveness. Let the blood of Jesus forgive you. Let him cover those sins. Let's clear yourself. Let's take this thing you did and let's make something good out of it. Let's come out the other side a stronger Christian. That is what the Holy Spirit is in. Here's a nice little test you can ask yourself. When you have sinned and you're feeling all this stuff and thinking all these thoughts, ask yourself, are they driving you to God or are they driving you away from him? If it's driving you to God, it's conviction and it's the Holy Spirit. If it's driving you away, it's condemnation, and that comes from Satan. Okay, so we finish up with verse 1, finally. And verse 1, as we said, is all about justification. At the very moment of salvation, we are united with Christ, and the verdict is rendered, no condemnation whatsoever. Now, we turn to verse 2. Verse 2 is about transformation. And I remind you once again... We are not justified or made right with God because our lives have changed. Our lives change because we've been justified. We've been, we say it in this church all the time, true salvation equals what? A changed life. 
So here we are in Romans 2. Paul says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What Paul wants to see here is not only us to see is not only is there no penalty for our sin, we are now set free from the power of sin in our life. Now, Paul uses the word law here twice, the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death. He's not referring to the Old Testament. He's not referring to anything that's written down. He's referring to a, a, a power or a principle or an impulse that is at work in someone's life. You see, when I'm in Jesus Christ, when I've been united with Him, I am now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And before, I had a, an impulse in me that just always drove me to sin. It was all about self, 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 self. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in and He replaces that with a new power and a new impulse. And that impulse leads to life. That's why Paul calls it the law of the Spirit of, of life. Now, in verse 3... Paul is going to tell us how God does this for us. Let's read this. He said this, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, let me explain again. We already covered this, but let me just remind you what he means by this. You remember our example of the speed limit sign. You're going down the road, you see a speed limit sign. What's your reaction? Is it, you know, I am really glad somebody did a study on that. And I'm really glad that they, they set the speed limit up. And that's the per... You know, if 65 is, is a good speed limit, I think I'll go 63. Is that how we react? No. This is how you react. Who do they think they are? I, I'm a better driver than most of these people around here. I know how I can drive safely. I, I, they, 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 this, that's ridiculous. You see, when the law, what happens when the law comes in, when the, the law, and, and Paul, of course, is talking about the written law, it doesn't produce faith, it pr produces resistance. It, 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 the law should help us by telling us what to do, and all we want to do is fight against it. Who does he think he is telling us what to do? So the law, which is good and holy and right, turns out to be weak because of us, because of our flesh. That's exactly. The law can never make you right with God. The law can never make you a better person because there's something inside of you that's wrong. There's something inside of you that's corrupt. And it doesn't, the law doesn't produce faith and obedience. It produces rebellion. So Paul says God has done what the law could never do because it was weakened by the flesh. And this is how he did it, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now let me point out a little technical thing here. Notice it says Jesus was like sinful flesh, okay? He's like it, but he's not 100% sinful flesh. And that is, Jesus was like us. He was fully human. He felt sorrow. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt he, temptation. He felt pain. He felt all of those things. But the Bible tells us several times in the New Testament, yet without sin. He, felt, he was fully human, but yet he never sin. So he was like sinful flesh, but he wasn't sinful flesh because he never sinned. You see, Jesus came to be a sin offering for you and I. And to do that, he had to be a spotless lamb. He, if he, by the way, if he had sinned, then he would have had to pay for his own sin. But because he was spotless, because he had no sin, then his sacrifice was acceptable to God the Father. 
Let's read that whole verse again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned. Now let's stop right there. There's that word again. There's that word. He accused sin, He found sin guilty, and He judged it. By the way, folks, He's talking about our sin. He condemned our sin. He judged our sin. See, God judged our sin by pouring the penalty out, not on us, but on Christ on the cross. Peter says he bore our sins on that tree. Charles Cranfield said this, For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no divine condemnation. Why? Because the condemnation which you deserve has already been borne by Jesus Christ. See, he's already paid. He's already been... uh, the, The accusation of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the penalty of our sin has already been paid for on the cross. Therefore, I'm immune. I'm immune from condemnation. That's a good feeling. Verse 4, why did he do this? Why did God do this? Let me, let me, let's read it and then I'll explain a couple things. In order that, that's for the purpose of, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God sent Jesus to die on a cross for my sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what in the world does that mean? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, let me remind you of something. We are not saved just to get to heaven. Okay? Listen, that is a wonderful result of salvation. I am looking forward to it. But between now and the time I go to heaven... God's got a plan for my life, and God's got a plan for your life. He's got things that He wants to get done. For example, we are saved to become slaves of righteousness. We are saved to walk in new life. We are saved to bear the fruit of holiness in our lives. We learned all of that back in Romans chapter 6. You see, God wants to do something in our life. He wants to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in us. Now, what does that mean? And how do we do it? We covered this a few weeks ago. I gave you a brief look ahead, and I told you when we got to this chapter, we'd cover it in more detail. So let's let Jesus answer this question. In Matthew 22, a lawyer comes up to Jesus to ask him a question. By the way, this lawyer is not interested in any truth. He's not interested really in finding anything out that he doesn't know. He's just trying to trap Jesus. They're always trying to trap him to find something they can condemn him with and, and, and kill him, and eventually they, they did. So this lawyer comes up to him and he asks him a question. He says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor and yourself as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. Now that is an amazing statement. Basically, Jesus said this: love your God and love your neighbor. Everything else is just explanation. I mean, can you imagine encapsulating the entire New Testament in that? Love God, love your neighbor. Everything else in the Old Testament is just an explanation of how to do those two things: how to love God and how to love your neighbor. You see, folks, love is and love has always been what God has been trying to get done. It's always been the righteous requirement of the law. It's always been what God has wanted from His people. 
Romans 13, Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And I love this statement. And if there's anything else you can come up with, if there's any other commandment you can come up with, they're all going to be summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay? Let me tell you, somebody asked me the other night, how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you know the Bible is the Word of God? And I don't remember how I answered it, but I'll give you three things. Number one, read it historically, and there's nothing like it. It calls out names and places and dates and times, and over the years, got time and time and a time again, it's been proven true, 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 true. There was, for, for 1,800 years, they said Pontius Pilate didn't exist. They just made him up. And then one day in the 1800s, an archaeologist uncovered a, a, a stele, and it said Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Once again, check it off. The Bible's true. Compare that to other books like the Book of Mormon, which it's got so much stuff in it that's not true, it's, it's, un, it's ridiculous. So historically, it's true. Spiritually, it's a book like no other. Spiritually, you open it up and you read this man, Jesus, and there's just nobody like him. Nobody says the kind of things that he says. But let me tell you, if you really want to know if the Bible is the Word of God, here's how you do it. Don't ask me. Ask God. Why is it that we go around and we watch YouTube videos and we, 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 we ask the preacher and we ask this person and that person and we fail to ask the one person we should ask, which is God himself? If you really want to know God is real and you really believe that, and you really want to know if the Bible is his revelation, ask him. Now, folks, don't play games. God ain't interested in playing games. But if you want the truth, he said, if you seek me, you will find me. If you really want to know the truth, just ask him. Ask him. He'll tell you. And what he'll do, I'll tell you, is he'll put something inside of you so there's no doubt. No doubt. Just, it's just in, in a second all your doubts will just flee. You'll just know it's the Word of God. I don't know where that came from. We've got to move back. Okay. So we have to love our neighbor, right? All right, listen. That's all great, and I want to do it, but how does it work in practice? How do we do these, these things? Well, Paul just told us, by the way, if we go back and read verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, and he's talking about us, who walk not according to the flesh, not according to the behaviors and patterns of thinking that we had when we were unbelievers, but according to the Spirit, to this new power, this new impulse, this, this new direction that we have in our, in our life. So we have to walk according to the Spirit. Now, I could go give you a bunch of scriptures like Galatians 5 that says the fruit of the Spirit and the very first fruit it lists is love. The Holy Spirit is going to produce love inside of us. That's a given. If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit, He's going to produce love. So what do I do? Do I just go home and sit on the couch and wait? Do I just sit there and, 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 and wait for a week or a month or five years until and, and He just kind of... Is that what we do? Of course that's not what we do. We have to play a part. 
You know, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people, I just want somebody to tell me what to do. <laughs> right? Just, just tell me what to do, and I'll go do it. But just tell me what to do. So tonight I'm going to tell you what to do. And here's what you do. If you want to love your neighbor, if you want to love your neighbor in ways you've never been able to do it, here's what you do. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I want you to see tonight. Your ability to love others has a direct correlation to your faith. Let me say it again. Your ability to love others has a direct correlation to your faith. I'm going to give you two examples from Scripture, and I'm going to show you what I mean. Hebrews chapter 10. This is an incredible uh, uh, passage of Scripture. The author of, uh, of Hebrews is writing, and he says this, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened or after you were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exploded publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, I want to stop right there and make sure you get the picture. Here's a church, and certain ones in the church have been arrested and thrown in prison. But others have not. Now, the question is, what are they going to do? Are, are they going to distance themselves from those people? Yeah, you know, hey, I, I don't really, those people are kind of radical. I don't really, you know, I, I'm not like them. You're going to throw them under the bus? Or are you going to partner with them? Are you going to have compassion on them? These people chose to love. These people went to the prison and visited them. And, and so everybody could see. They, they went to their families and gave them money or took them food and, and made sure their, their needs were supplied. And because they did that, the Bible says their pl- uh, property was plundered. Now, I don't know. They didn't, get, didn't give us details. I don't know if the authorities came and condemned their houses. I don't know if their neighbors uh, rushed into their house and, and, and tore everything up and, and stole stuff. That happens especially over in like Muslim countries and places like that. Sometimes the neighbors will just come in and beat people up and plunder their property. And, but that's what these people did. You see, these people chose to love. They chose to love even though it meant they would suffer hurt. They would suffer loss. They would suffer pain. Now, here's my question. What makes somebody do that? By the way, you need to start asking yourself this question right here, right now. What's going to happen when they come, and they may not, let's pray they don't, but what if they arrest Pastor Henry for preaching the gospel? He gets up one day and he makes a, he preaches a message and he preaches against homosexuality and they show up one day and they take him to jail. What are you going to do? Make your mind up now. Don't wait. Make it up now. Are you going to stand by him? Are you going to publicly affiliate yourself with him and support him? And people are going to write, would you do that? If, if people are watching and say, oh, he supports Henry, and they call your, your employer and they try to get you fired. Folks, that's happening all over the place. Make up your mind now. Are you going to choose to love? Can you choose to love? How, do you, how does somebody do this? Well, we don't have to guess because the writer of Hebrews answers the question. 
You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The reason they did it is because they really believe this world is not their home. The reason they did it because they believed in a God who said, I'll supply all of your needs according to my riches in Christ Jesus. They really believe down deep that even if somebody took their house and even if somebody took their car and even if somebody plundered their property and they lost their job, that God the Father is still their strong tower. They believe that. So I I want you to understand that the faith you have in God liberates you to love. It liberates you. See, when you believe God's promises, it sets you free. You're not... Listen, think about it. Do you know the number one reason most people don't give more to church than they do? Somebody help me out. What's the number one reason you don't give more? Even those of you... some, Some people can't, but some of you can. You know the reason you don't? Fear. It's fear. You trust... You trust your money more than you trust God. Well, I could give more, but then, I mean, what about my 401k? How am I going to put money into that? And I got, are you with me? But when you really believe God, when you really have faith in God, it sets you free to do things you normally wouldn't be able to do. And people look at you and say, how is that person able to do that? Because something in deep inside of them believes the promises of God and says what he, he believes that what he says he's actually going to do. Let me give you one more and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 13, we all know this chapter. It's a love chapter. It describes love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Doesn't envy. It's not proud. Doesn't dishonor. Goes on and on. And it, right there near the end it says this. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, folks, that ain't natural. You understand that? We keep record of wrongs. Yes? That the natural thing, when somebody wrongs you, when somebody offends you, we, we make a little mental note and we tuck it in our, our back pocket and we hold on to it. But see, this is a, this is a love that Paul is talking about here. It doesn't keep any records of wrongs. Now, how, do, how, does, how does somebody go from being somebody that keeps... And listen, let me say this. It is perfectly okay to want justice. We all want justice. One of the hardest things in life is when somebody does something to you and you feel like they're going to get away with it. That drives us insane. Doesn't it? Because we... That, that's not right. They, that's not right. That's not right. We want justice. And so we feel like, man, I got, I got to do something. I got to do something. I, I've told a story years ago. I wasn't planning on telling this here tonight, but I told a story years ago. I, I, somebody asked, I had a tractor, and somebody asked to borrow my tractor. And uh, I said, sure, and I let them borrow it, and they blew the motor up. And they brought it back to me and said, well, the motor blew up, I'm sorry, and left it to me to fix it. And, man, <laughs> I did not like that. And I would lay there at night, and I would think about going up to their house and putting sand in their tank, in their gas tank. I mean, that's, that's what I would think about. Well, how can I get him back? That's not right. 
Now, y'all would never do anything, <laughs> anything that terrible. But the Lord began to deal with me about let it go. Let it go. And I'd say, but God, that's, you know, but God. He'd say, let it go. And you know what? Finally, let, I was able to let it go. Romans 12, 9. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to God. Leave it to God. See, justice is coming for everybody. Now, I've matured a lot since then, and I, I don't want him to get justice. I want him to get forgiveness. I've forgiven him. I hope God forgives You know what I'm saying? I don't want that anymore. That doesn't mean near what it did back then. But the point is, when we really believe that God is going to make everything right, it sets us free to let things go. When you really believe God is going to make everything right in the end, it sets you free to let these things go that are holding you back. Some of you have got relationships that are broken in your life. Some of it's family, some of it's friends, and, and a lot of it's because you're holding on to things and you're not believing God for who He says He is. Let it go. Have faith in God. Put it in His hands and just let it go. And you are liberated to love. I was thinking, let me back up right here. I was thinking about this, uh, when I was thinking about liberated to love, I was thinking about this, a picture like this where, you know, if you asked me to walk that, top, walk that wire two or three stories up, well, there's no way I would do it, right? But if you put a big safety net three feet under it, that changes everything, doesn't it? Well, see, that's what God is trying to do for us. He's trying to set us free. Take some chances. Forgive some people. Love some people. Because I'm, I'm here. I got it all covered. And that's what I mean by liberated to, to love. Hey, I want to announce uh, one thing tonight. Chuck and I were talking a couple weeks ago uh, about doing something uh, a little different uh, ever so often on Wednesday night. We want to do a... Wednesday night, maybe every three months, every four months, where we just do a Q&A. I know that a lot of you have got questions about Scripture, questions about God, questions about culture, and you're, they're rolling around in your head and you're not sure who to ask. You haven't really gotten an answer, and we want to answer those questions for you. One of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible is it will shock you how many answers the Bible has. It will absolutely shock you. So if you've got questions, if you want to know where the dinosaurs on the ark, if you want to know who created God, if you want to know, I don't care. You, you don't, if you want to know one of the questions somebody asked me, is it okay for Christians to be cremated? It doesn't matter what the answers are, the, the, I mean what the questions are. The answers or the principles are, are, are pretty much always found in the Bible. If you want to know, somebody asked me the other day, why doesn't Jesus... Uh, talk about homosexuality or condemn homosexuality in the New Testament. Of course he does. Of course he does. If you, want me to, if you want to know about that, we'll answer those questions for you. So what you can do, if you've got questions, you can email them to me at Derek.gray at Bentley, like the car.com, or you can uh, email them to Chuck here at riveroflifefl.com. If you're embarrassed, for, and by the way, there is no dumb question. There's no dumb question. If you've got a question, trust me, somebody else has got the same question. So don't think, well, man, I'm not going to give them my name and, and, you know, let them, don't worry about that. But if it bothers you so much, write it down, 
drop it in the offering box. Chuck will get it and, and pass it on to me. And then once we get uh, several questions, we'll just stop one Wednesday night and we'll just do a Q&A and we'll answer those questions uh, for you. So sound good? I think that'll be good and that will be uh, interesting. Okay, so I want to close tonight. Uh, uh, we're going to di- pray and then we're going to dismiss. I do want to remind you every time, if you have questions about the lesson, please don't walk out of here without coming up and asking me. I love to hang around and talk. I love to answer questions um, or just talk about what we studied. Um, feel free to do that. Uh, if you need prayer, okay, we certainly, and Pastor Henry will, will, say, will second this, we certainly do not want to leave here. Uh, that's what we're here for. We're here to learn. We're here to fellowship. We're here to pray with one another, edify one another, build one another up. That's what the church is all about. So if you need prayer tonight, uh, after we dismiss, just feel free to come up and, and Scooter, Henry, uh, Brother Al, several of us are up here and we'll pray for you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. And uh, Father, we thank you for Romans 8, 1 through 4. What, a, what an incredible passage of Scripture. And God, I know tonight that there are people here that needed to hear that they are liberated to love. There's not a one of us that goes through life without being offended. There's not a one of us that goes through life without being hurt. How are we going to react to that? Are we going to react like everybody else, or are we going to react like people who believe in the Bible and believe your promises and have faith in you? God, help us. Help us to be people of the book. Help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to walk not by sight, but by faith, believing that what you say you're going to make come true. God, we love you, and Holy Spirit, just please take this word and drive it home into each one of our hearts tonight. And We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.